If you're a North Korean news aficionado like me, you probably came across the NK News website well before discovering the podcast. It's an incredible source that gets you behind the headlines to give you what's probably the most reliable and evidence-based news on North Korea. Every business day, you'll get between 5 to 10 articles that provide exclusive news, detailed analysis, and informed opinions. And guess what? Each week, they send you forward-looking week-ahead briefings and news alerts to keep you ahead of the curve. There's more. NK News members also get special reader-only benefits, access to exclusive events and online conferences, and perpetual access to our archive of podcasts. And here's the best part. You can get a $100 discount on your annual subscription with the code PODCAST. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org discount. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the monthly roundtable month in review recorded on Tuesday, December the 12th in the NK News Situation Room, or studio, as we like to call it. Welcome to my colleagues, Shreyas Reddy, Joe Smith for his first time, and for his last time, James Fretwell. Welcome all. Hello. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Today is the 44th anniversary of the Shibi Shibi Sakon, or the December 12th coup d'etat by John Dehuan and the members of his Hanahue Society back in 1979. Have any of you seen the movie playing in Korean cinemas at the moment, Seoul Air Bomb, or by its somewhat unwieldy English title, 12.12 colon The Day? We were just talking about this in the office, actually, I think. I have watched it, and oh. yeah, I definitely recommend it. I think for those who are fans of Korean history, either Korea, but obviously in this case, South Korea, definitely worth the watch. Mm -hmm. Yep, I would second Shreyas' emotions there. It's definitely worth the watch. And once you've seen that, then go on to YouTube or Netflix, either way, uh, but YouTube, you can do it for free, and watch The President's Last Bang, also known as the Korean Kutte Kusaramdul, about the assassination of Park Chung-hee that took place a couple of months before the December 12th incident. So that's uh, a couple of good South Korean history-based movies. Yeah, well worth the watch. Have you seen the second one, uh, the uh, the earlier one about the president's assassination, Treyas? I have not watched the one you mentioned, but I did watch uh, another movie from uh, a few years ago. I think there was also South Korea's Oscar nominee a couple of years ago. Ah, okay. The, I think it was The Man Standing Next, something like that. Ah, yeah. yep, yep. Yeah, I, I, I watched that one too. It wasn't bad, but I do think that the Kutte uh, Kusaramdul, the President's Last Bang, is actually, it's a better one. In, in it, well, okay, better is, is a subjective word. It's like a dark comedy. It's almost like a Coen Brothers version of, uh, of a South Korean film. Anyway, that being said, let's get on to this month in review. And you've chosen three themes. We're going to start off talking about the daughter of Kim Jong-un. First things first, we need to really clarify the name of Kim Jong-un's daughter. Now, last month in the Korea Times, uh, Chair Soo-yong, a former official at South Korea's National Intelligence Service, came out and said that uh, the name Kim Joo-er, that's been reported in media a lot, is a, is a literal misnomer, as in the wrong name. He said the source for the name Joo-er is Dennis Rodman, who's not a Korean speaker, and that he may have misunderstood Kim Jong-un when he referred to his daughter as Joo-er, that, that child or that girl. Chair Soo-yong claims that the girl's name is actually Kim Eun-ju. Do we blend any credence to this? Well, so I think first thing first one should point out is that North Korea has never officially reported her name. So all we have are 
assumptions as well as a combination of intelligence estimates and mm-hmm. certainly you, uh, on the basis of thing what we do know we think certainly there's enough reason to believe that she actually is Kim Joo-hye the name given by Dennis Rodman and there have been other sources that have in their own way sort of verified this not all on the record but essentially they've said yes Kim Jong-un has a daughter named Joo-hye she'd be about that right about that age so i think we're kind of go- working with the assumption that this is her but again with the caveat that north korea has not officially reported her name yet mm-hmm. and that's reports that you mentioned jacko it also the former intelligence official says that kim jong un has four children and not three as south korean intelligence has previously reported he's got illegitimate children so there's a lot of extra details thrown into the mix there that i mean we can't confirm <laughs> We can't we can either confirm nor deny. Uh, but it is interesting that Che Soo-young used to work for the National Intelligence Service and this is the same National Intelligence Service that last year said that Jue is the name of the girl. So uh, now we've got uh, intelligence and former intelligence uh, conflicting with each other. And earlier this year there was that report there I think you were hinting at that uh, Shreyas that uh, Radio Free Asia reported that some people who were already had the name Jue were being forced to change their name so it does make me wonder what the heck is going on. There was also a report on NK News that some North Korean websites were removing searches for Kim Jue's name mm, as well right. which could be a sign. Yeah. But at the same time obviously should uh, mention that certainly that Radio Free Asia story very hard to verify these kinds of reports are often single source anonymous mm-hmm. hard to uh, verify. but certainly combination of various factors like joe mentioned uh the searches being restricted intelligence reports fr- like from the national intelligence service and other general estimates do su- uh, suggest joe might be the name but for now we don't we can't be 100% sure that it makes me wonder why chase young you know having retired from the nns is sticking his neck out and making this uh, this public pronouncement here when we really can't check for sure what's in it for him It's unusual. I, I want to point out that there was also initial confusion in the years around Kim Jong Un's coming out about whether his name was Kim Jong Un or Kim Jong Un, uh, or whether the name was once Kim Jong Un but was changed to Kim Jong Un. And of course, he used a totally different name when he was at school in Switzerland. So this is part of a pattern that until North Korea comes out with a, a, a firm statement about any child existing or the name of a child existing. we're not supposed to know and my anecdotal evidence for that is in 2010 and this is this is in August 2010 literally 6 weeks before the big coming out party where Kim Jong Un was was you know had his sort of debutant ball or equivalent thereof uh, in North Korea everybody that i spoke to in North Korea who was trained in talking to foreigners so guides and hotel staff etc none of them would confirm that Kim Jong Il had any children nor his names so they certainly weren't talking about Kim Jong Un to outsiders but we know retrospectively that internally they were definitely talking about Kim Jong Un amongst themselves so if her name is Kim Joo I think everybody in North Korea probably knows it but we're not supposed to know yet and that information won't come out until there's an official statement yeah and certainly i think also we must bear in mind that her introduction itself has been very unusual by North Korean yeah. standards in previous cases when leaders introduced their children they were already full grown adults by the time they went public eye so it made sense to then go okay here's the person who uh, were kind of in, uh, getting into the leadership positions gradually yep. this is their name they're already an important part of the setup right in this case is just someone who is kim jong un's daughter yeah yeah and it, it, it's interesting uh, well we'll come back to the question of uh, whether there are multiple kids and what that means 
Uh, now on to a, a less serious story, but one that has had a lot of eyes on it recently, if you'll pardon the pun, and that is that Kim Jong-un's daughter wore some Gucci sunglasses. Joe, uh, give us the scoop on this. Well, I think you're referring to the Gucci GG3644S D2080D sunglasses. What's the retail price? We don't actually know the retail price because oh. they're quite old. Discontinued product, but... Ah, what would if I went to eBay, for example, or, or Yahoo Japan to get a secondhand pair, what would they cost me? Anywhere between $78 to $288, but in varying uh, states of, well, condition. Right. Okay. Hmm. Well, that's certainly a luxury item, but not a hefty price tag. Maybe uh, there were her mums, possibly. Perhaps. And earlier this year, she wore a Dior kids jacket that w- cost more than the price of two pure wool tailored suits at a tailor shop here in Seoul. If that's $2,000, then yes, that's exactly how much it cost. Right. Uh, now, there have been uh, United Nations sanctions on the sale of luxury goods to North Korea for a long time. How did these glasses and the Dior kids jacket slip in? Well, if you knew the answer to that, that'd be a great story. But these Gucci glasses were a discontinued product. The Dior coat was not. Mm. But also, the foreign minister, Trey Son, he had a, a Gucci bag not long ago, which we reported on, and that was uh, $10,000. But that oh. was also discontinued. Oh, so, so she see, could have bought that on the resale market. Yeah, they seem there to have There is a big these... secondary market on luxury goods. Well, yeah, it yeah. seems to be that maybe that's what their, uh, the elites in North Korea are, are buying from. Have either Gucci or Dior released a statement? Gucci did reply very belatedly to one of my emails huh? saying they won't make any comment on the matter. Hmm, okay. I was very disappointed. Gee, all right. Now, Unification Minister Kim Yong-ho has publicly stated recently that he believes that Kim Jong-un may be in a hurry to anoint his daughter, who's around 10 years old, to be his successor. Why is he saying this? I mean, he could be alluding to, there's been lots of speculation over the years about Kim Jong-un's health, perhaps. You know, he goes, he disappears for long periods of time from state media. And so maybe Kim knows that, you know, he's, he's approaching his final few years or that he has some kind of condition or whatever, or just, you know, just in case something happens, he wants to have his, his successor in place. It could be to do with something I don't know, to, to do with the country's difficult economic situation. He's just trying to shore up political stability in that sense by promoting a, an heir. Yeah, we, we, we don't know. Uh, we don't know for sure yet. So he, he didn't, in his statement, Kim Jong-ho didn't give any specifics on that. Like, you know, I think the guy's going to die soon. So therefore, he wants to anoint his daughter as successor. Kim Jong-ho said that, you know, Kim Jong-un appears, so he's not saying anything for sure, but that he appears to be in a hurry to highlight his daughter. And that seems to suggest that he is trying to demonstrate his will for succession in the face of difficulties that North Korea is facing. So that's quite vaguely worded. Remember that a lot of South Korean officials, especially under this administration, which is very hardline toward North Korea, Mm. they issue a lot of statements about North Korean, criticizing North Korean human rights, criticizing the capabilities of North Korea's military. So, you know, there's always the possibility that the unification minister might kind of be jumbling in a lot of things there uh, to kind of criticize the North in another way. It is very speculative. We all do like a bit of good Kremlin- Kremlinology. Uh, and then this brings me back to the, the earlier point that, uh, uh, James, you said that uh, Che Soo-young, the former NIS agent, said that Kim Jong-un has four children rather than three. And 
It is interesting that the only one we've ever seen, repeatedly, with or without Dior Kid's jacket or Gucci sunglasses, is this girl who may or may not be, be named Kim Joo. I'm just going to keep calling her Kim Jong-un's daughter because we don't know. But it is interesting that we only see her no matter how many children there are. Right. And he apparently has an older child. And apparently that older child might be a son as well. So this adds another layer of confusion mm. into the debate about is Kim Jong-un's daughter, is she the successor because North Korea is a very patriarchal society and so wouldn't it therefore make sense for Kim Jong-un to uh, appoint a son? We know from Kim Jong-un's own experience to ascent to the throne that it's not necessarily the oldest son that gets to become leader of North Korea. Yep. But it has always been a son. And so that's an important, that has been an important counterpoint to the uh, Kim Jue is, is definitely the successor argument. She's also extremely young as well. So. That's right. I mean, she is, a, we don't know exactly, just like Kim Jong-un, we don't know exactly how old this uh, the girl is. Uh, she may be uh, 10 or 11 years old, depending on what year she was born in. Now, former North Korean diplomat turned South Korean politician Taeyong Ho, he's also speculated that Kim, the daughter, might have been named successor. What's his evidence for that? Well, a lot, a lot of it comes. Uh, it stems from another so anonymously sourced report that came out. I think it was in Radio Free Asia again, saying that essentially the daughter has been given the title the Morning Star General of Choson oh. of uh, of North Korea. And essentially, this report uh, this report is aimed at showing that. She's kind of developing her own little cult of personality, that she's being uh, elevated, she's being given a significant title. Right. And so they're saying that this title uh, change, so far she's been called Kim Jong-un's beloved daughter, mm. she's a respected daughter. And they're saying that this basically implies that they're kind of propelling her to the leadership, they're trying to position her in that situation where she has titles similar to her grandfather, her great-grandfather, uh, who uh, certainly were uh, known by uh, similar epithet, astronomical epithets. So essentially, we're saying that if this report is true, then it means that they are building that little cult of personality for her, even at this young age. It's important to point out there that Mr. Tay defected in August 2016 when daughter Kim was either three or four years old. So this is all based on post-facto information that's that's come yeah. out, these reports that have come yeah. out since his defection. But it does seem, I mean, if, if this is correct, if internally, you know, in the inner track propaganda that uh, these titles are being used for her, like the, what, a young general of the Morning Star of Korea, then that, that does follow a pattern. I mean, Kim Jong-un was called the young general before his, uh, his name was... Uh, publicly mentioned so that that is possible now of course we'll be dealing with this question at nk news on the nk news podcast until the day that the north korean state comes out and makes an official statement whether that's this year or 10 years from now but what do we men think about this question for now i think it's definitely very possible that she's the successor i think more than gender the most important thing when it becomes to a applying for the North Korean leadership position is your bloodline. And she is the daughter of Kim Jong-un, who is the grandson of Kim Il-sung. So I think she's a she's a very strong contender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Joe, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think she's being groomed for the role. But I mean, if something like were to happen to Kim Jong-un tomorrow, let's say, then I think possibly Kim Yo-jong would be 
taking charge. Ah, uh, like a like a kind of a regent, an interim, uh, yes, a, a steward, as it were. Uh-huh. Okay, Shreyas, any thoughts? Yeah, I would also say that certainly her bloodline, that sacred pecto bloodline, yeah. as it were, uh, makes her a very strong candidate. And the fact that she's being presented in public in this manner, like at such a high profile at such a young age, certainly suggests she's being groomed for it. Certainly, as you pointed out earlier, North Korea is a very patriarchal society, so mm. there would be a lot of challenges ahead of her in terms of, I think you, there were always questions raised a few years ago when Kim Yo-jong was being, uh, there was speculation that Kim Yo-jong would be Kim Jong-un's successor. A lot of people said, oh, will the military listen to her? Will the the uh, old uh, men in power listen to her? And she's an adult. Exactly. Mm. And so Kim Jo-ae will face that as well as, questions about whether she's ready for it right now but at the end of the day as james said she is part of the ruling family she's already being presented in public she's mm. being groomed for it yeah if that when the time comes if she has enough uh, political capital behind her why not i'm going to ask a, uh, a an unanswerable question that will simply hang in the, <laughs> the air like a bad smell um you know if you're a, a parent and i'm not uh, actually none of us in this room are as far as i'm aware um if you're a parent and you've got four children who are, you know, let's say aged from 13 on down, assuming that there is an older child, um, you have to wonder what character traits you find in a 10 or 11-year-old child to say, ah, that is the one that's going to be the successor. Like, it, 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 it does seem all very <laughs> premature to me, you know. Well, we do kind of have evidence for this, actually, because apparently when Kim Jong-un was being chosen, you know, his he, he had an older brother yeah. um, who's... Two. Uh, right, well, half brother, yeah, um, and his um, older brother was is known to be a big uh, Eric Clapton fan. That's right. how he got into the news. But he was considered uh, reportedly more more sensitive than, mm-hmm. than Kim Jong Un, and um, you know, Kim Jong Un was a was a big basketball fan, very competitive on the basketball court, and you know, his kind of even from an early age, he his father kind of saw in him that kind of aggressiveness and and drive that if you're going to be the uh, the leader of a of a country like North Korea, those are those are good qualities to have. Yeah. Although well, now that we've seen Kim Jong Un cry in public a few times, I have to wonder if I mean if <laughs> if, if if Kim Jong Chol is is uh, deemed to have been too what's the word uh, sensitive by his father Kim Jong Il, then you know how much more. Maybe he just weeps at every opportunity. I don't know. Uh, I mean, but yeah, again, coming back to a, a 10 or 11-year-old girl, uh, what kind of a – is it this aggressiveness on the playground? Have uh, For successive fans out there, have they played a game of boar on the floor in one of Kim Jong-un's uh, palaces there and Kim, uh, the, the, the girl was you know, faster at grabbing the sausage? I mean, we just don't know. It is a good question, though. But um, yeah, I think it does – I would assume it does say about Kim Jue that she definitely – is intelligent and uh, has a has a lot of drive in her. Mm. I think it's, it's fairly safe to assume those things. Otherwise, I mean, yeah, it'd be a, it'd be a huge risk to, well, uh, to start introducing her in that sense. Time will tell, and the North Korean state, of course, in its own time will tell too. All right, let's move on to the, the second theme, and that is of uh, embassy closures. Joe Smith, welcome on the show. Uh, I've already said that, but how does it feel to be on this side of the mic for the first time? Oh, absolutely splendid. How many? How long have you been listening to uh, the NK News podcast? Yeah, oh, I previously told Jacko, I, I think I first started listening in 2017, and I never, ever thought that one day I'd be it's hearing amazing, that, that central was, voice so up close. 
<laughs> that he actually started listening a year before we started the podcast in February 2018. <laughs> Was it? No. no. I'll have we, to go back. And we began in time for the uh, the Olympic detente of, uh, of February, March 2018. You've been saving this joke for when I came on a podcast to embarrass <laughs> I me. Didn't know you were, I didn't know you were going to say 2017 <laughs> until just now. So. <laughs> but I, I am flattered that you've been listening for a very long time and it's great to welcome you here on the show uh, as, as one of the colleagues rather than a listener. Uh, now, North Korea has closed many embassies and other consular missions in the last month or two. Uh, can you give us a running count of how many countries, which countries, uh, and the one city that have been closed? Well, so far, we're up to nine. Okay. We've got Angola, Uganda, Spain, Bangladesh, Republic of Congo, Nepal, Senegal, Guinea, and the Hong Kong consulate. Right. Okay. So that is nine. So we're still a little bit under a dozen. Do we know if more embassies are planned to be closed? Are there uh, conf- confirmations or rumors? Yes, there are. There was a Japanese newspaper that reported yeah, up to a dozen could close. Hmm. So there's certainly room for, for more. Uh, I've said this before in the podcast, and I'll say it again. Uh, for me, Hong Kong was the surprise. Are there any surprises in that list for you? I guess it's been a bit of a surprise to some people, including myself, how many from Africa. Hmm. It seems like there's been a real, a real shift in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And Senegal in particular with the 52-meter-tall uh, African Renaissance monument made of bronze just outside Dakar. Uh, was designed and built by Mansa, their overseas projects. Now, closing the embassy in Dhaka would be, I think, symbolically meaningful, though it might not mean much in actual practice or, or business, because we know that North Korean embassies are, are in charge of bringing in business and, and, and money back for the headquarters back home. And that uh, symbolism is United Nations sanctions breaking yeah. jobs. Right. Now, what about Guinea, where there was once an institute of the, uh, for the study of Jucha agriculture to try to work out how... North Korean jucha agriculture methods could be adapted to African conditions. I mean, was was there much activity there recently, or is this, you know, are they all offices that have been pretty quiet and they're just folding, you know, closing the doors? And no one's really noticed. Guinea, especially, very quiet. It seems Senegal, like you say, there had been some uh, projects building statues, but nothing recent. Nothing. They, they seem pretty empty, to be honest. It seems like there's not much going on. And why is this all happening? Is it all just about money? Well. Tae Yong Ho thinks it is. He was the uh, the number two at the uh, the mission in London. Now, of course, he worked at many different uh, North Korean consular offices in Europe during his tenure. Yes, some of them uh, were forced to close because of sales of duty free cigarettes on the black market or things like that. So he knows a little bit about making money, of course. Uh, well, he was saying, yeah, he just reckons the sanctions are hurting these countries badly, and uh, and North Korea because of that have got to sort of shift their priorities. But however, Andrei Lankov did say to NK News that he thinks uh, North Korea is just closing more inwards. He says their financial situation isn't as bad as what other people are making out, but they're just um, returning to sort of Kim Il-sungism. Has North Korea made any statements about all these uh, consular closures? They have, yeah. They said just that they're changing their direction and they said they're going to open a few more. They're acting like it's uh, business as usual. Mm. Opening a few more. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they do open a few more. I mean, are there any signs or hints of any new offices being opened anywhere? Nicaragua ah. is the only one where the uh, prime minister has hinted at greater relations and the possibility of opening an embassy. So in that case, I should po- uh, point out it was more that Nicaragua said they want to uh, open an embassy in Pyongyang, but the uh, impression is if they're going to upgrade relations, then perhaps Pyongyang may want to reciprocate as well. Right. Help me out here. Is Nicaragua the country that uh, adopted the Bitcoin as a, uh, a legal tender, or is that El Salvador? Am I wrong here? Nicar- well, I know well, Venezuela certainly pitched one uh, a currency of their own at uh-huh. one point. 
but I'll have to recheck. Um, hmm, yeah, yeah. I, and, or or it may be one that that uses the U.S. dollar, which would be an interesting one, wouldn't it? If it's a dollarized economy, that would be difficult for North Koreans to have an office there. I would imagine, given the uh, American State Department, what hang on, the OFAC, not State Department, OFAC sanctions. Well, Nicaragua certainly has a fair share of uh, anti-U.S. sentiment, so I think yeah. in that sense there will be something there for them to latch on to. But yeah, I think in general there will be. There, there certainly have has been talk of other, if not closures or openings, maybe at least reshuffles here mm. and there. Certainly, we've seen in a few countries ambassadors have been making a kind of go farewell calls to saying, okay, we expect we're going to be heading back to North Korea soon. So I think it's a case of right now waiting and watching to see what will become of their embassies after they leave. Right, the North Korean ambassador to uh, to Switzerland's been recalled, hasn't he? They destroyed on that recently. Yeah, I think so. Still looking into the circumstances surrounding that, but also I think the Indonesian, the ambassador to Indonesia has been uh, paying uh, farewell calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Indonesian media reported that he is expected to go back in mid-December. Okay, wow. Now, meanwhile, on the other side of the equation, is there any hope that those countries who had embassies and offices in North Korea will be allowed to go back anytime soon? I think right now it's a case of waiting and watching, to be honest. I mm. think a lot of countries are certainly looking into it. Certainly uh, after earlier this year, China sent its new ambassador to North Korea, but then it, they, they very clearly stated this is as an, done as an exception. Mm. And then si- since then, Russia has managed several diplomatic shuffles just because, well, frankly, they had diplomats stuck there for four year, almost yeah. four years. Yeah. So they've had people coming, going in and out. but. These are essentially the countries for which North Korea is willing to make an exception. Right. But it has at least given a lot of other countries that had embassies, operations there, hope that they might be able to uh, go in there. But at the moment, it doesn't seem like there's any progress on that front. It's similar to the tourism. I think we keep hearing different time frames of when this will be allowed to happen. Yeah, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't imagine that uh, there'll be large numbers of people going into North Korea during the winter. That seems to be a time that there's a bit of a hunkering down. It's quite cold. There's not a lot of heating going on there. So it's not the best time for for foreigners to be arriving in North Korea. So probably next spring we might see something. And we don't know the state these embassies are in as well. Well, we don't exactly. I mean, what's uh, the weather and and the seasons, the four distinct seasons of Pyongyang done for these uh, consular officers that have been left unattended for the last three and a half years? Uh, okay, well, that is our uh, our second theme. Now let's go on to the uh, the third theme, and that is uh, North Korea recently held a uh, a conference uh, for Mother's Day. So last month, the actual Mother's Day, I think it's uh, mid November, what sixteenth, seventeenth, something like that. North Korea has a different Mother's Day to South Korea, uh, so it had that as it always does in mid November. And then at the start of December, there was this national meeting of mothers held in Pyongyang, and thousands of mothers from around the country descended upon the capital city, dressed in their finest, brightly colored Choson Chogori, Chima and Jogori, sorry, not uh, never to call it Hanbok uh, in a North Korean context, that would be wrong. Uh, and Kim Jong-un went and met them, and we were very enthusiastically welcomed by the mothers, judging by the footage that I saw on social media yesterday. Thoughts on that? Well, the two most important things, well, one of the uh, most striking things was that North, um, that Kim Jong-un was calling on mothers uh, to help increase the country's birth rate, which is extremely low. And that's interesting because we hear a lot in the media about South Korea's birth rate. So it's interesting to, to take note again that uh, North Korea is also f- facing a, a similar issue. 
Yeah, South Korea's birth rate well below replacement rate. It's in fact it's below one child now. I think it's down to under point eight. I think it's point seven. Point seven. So what is the birth rate of North Korea? So one point eight, which is also below replacement rate, and so obviously Kim Jong Un has some concerns about the sustainability of North Korea's population growth, even if they're well ahead of South Korea. In overall terms, for a country, they would ideally want to be, uh, be producing more children. So it, you're saying that it's for economic reasons that he wants to raise the birth rate? I mean, in the case of North Korea, it could be for any number of reasons. Could It uh, could just about, you need uh, a reasonably high population to have a sustainable workforce. In the yeah. case of North Korea, their military replenishment in general, I think North Korea, when it comes down to it, it's about producing children who will serve the state mm-hmm. in whatever uh, means, in whatever capacity they can, whatever way the state needs them to. And so for that, they do need be- people. They cannot afford to have their population going down. Yeah, so, so Kim Jong-un made this impassioned speech in which he talked about the need to, uh, to raise the birth rate. Did he actually announce any incentives or specific programs to help raise the birth rate? Not that I recall. I think it was mostly just about the rhetoric and trying to uh, at least encourage, well, encourage is a mild word, Mm -hmm. but certainly instruct people, uh, instruct the mothers that they must do their duty for the nation, that they must produce more children and not just produce more children, but raise children uh, well, that they should be attuned to the country's values and free of foreign influences, essentially serving the North Korean ideology. They're going to struggle with incentives, obviously, because of the state of the country's poor economy. But Mm -hmm. another interesting thing to note about North Korea is that following the the famine and the the breakdown of the state food distribution system, it was actually women that went to the markets and became um, the the breadwinners of, of many families because, you know, men were expected to turn up to their state jobs where they would earn basically nothing. Women were the ones that were really bringing the money home. And so that adds an extra complicating factor. I suppose a lot of families in difficult positions, you know, the the women can't be afford to be taking too much time out to give birth uh, because they've got to go to work to, to keep the family alive. Now, I, re- I read a story uh, or an analysis on NK Pro that suggested that actually North Korea's birth rate's been low for a long time, maybe even more or less since the famine of the 1990s. And so this recent statistic is, is not anything new in and of itself. It's simply North Korea being more honest about its, its birth statistics. Possibly, yeah. I mean, any statistics coming out of North Korea <laughs> need to be taken yeah, with a, with a healthy dose of, of skepticism. But yeah, uh, I think that's by Peter Ward on mm, NK yep. Pro. Yeah. yeah, and that's a great analysis. It's looking. Um, yeah, he he takes has some great graphs in there too to look at the the, right. the statistics over the years. So there's a lot of figures that you can you can look at uh, North Korea's official birth rates and population. You can look at what outside organizations are saying. You can look at countries in in similar economic. Um, situations, maybe other countries that had uh, also experienced famines as well. And when you put all these numbers side by side, there does seem to be something that doesn't quite add up, that North Korea's population at least is is lower than what they uh, officially report. Now, we saw during this, this mother's conference that Kim got emotional, he, he wept. Do we know why? Well, I think one first thing to point out is that 
a lot of media outlets reported it as Kim weeping during his speech and mm-hmm. while trying, making an impassioned plea, but mm. actually he was weeping while listening to someone else speaking at the mm. conference. We don't now, North Korean TV clip of the conference where we see him weeping, mm-hmm. it was dubbed over by the announcer. So right. we couldn't which, is off, which is usual. Which right? is I usually mean, the case. It's very yes. rare that you actually see footage and hear the original audio yeah. of the time. In fact, it's even more common just to see still photographs within an, an, a narrative. Occasionally you'll see moving footage with a narrative. But you ne- almost never see you know, moving footage with the original audio. So, yeah, you're right, yeah. Trez. And so, but I think a lot of when it comes to Kim Jong-un weeping, uh, you certainly mentioned earlier we've now seen him weeping a few times. Mm. Quite notably, I think this was October 2020 or it was 2021. Right, when he uh, apologized for, uh, for not being able to, to give yes. people the lifestyle that, to which they become yes. accustomed. October 2020. Yeah, ah, yeah, yeah. so uh, essentially it was a, at a military parade and he wept openly mm-hmm. and apologized for the suffering p- uh, people were dealing with. But at the same time, he used it as an opportunity to uh, tell people, you'll have to suffer longer, you'll have to right. do better. And a lot of times, so it seems like, unlike his father who maintained this very tough image. Mm, very Kim stoic, J- wasn't he? Yes. Kim Jong-un occasionally is willing to show a slightly more sensitive side mm-hmm. of himself, mm. but, but it also feels like there's a point to it. In this case, it comes as he is in telling the mothers, we need to, our country is suffering, we are, need to do better, we need to produce more children, we need to produce better children, mm-hmm. so that we can be on the rise. And so we're simultaneously saying, this is not a country where you, uh, where perhaps it would be great for, to bring a child into, mm-hmm. but we need you to do your duty. So there's often that little undertone where he's, he's trying to show that he has more sympathetic side of himself. Now, did he speak to the group of mothers twice on two separate days? I believe so. Yes. The other time he talks a lot about, so North Korea's birth rate is low, and it, yeah. it seems like the, uh, even those kids who are being born, they're in danger of having their minds warped by foreign influence. Right, um, the anti-socialist problems. Yeah, so right. He's, ta- he's talking about what foreign influences. What does he mean? We suppose that he's talking about um, Gucci sunglasses. Gucci. <laughs> uh, maybe, well, maybe not. That's a very. That is a good point, though. I mean, there is a lot of. Uh, there is a strong element of hypocrisy in that the North Korean leader's family gets to enjoy all these luxury goods mm-hmm. um, imported from abroad, while the rest of the population is told, "No, you can't." Uh, watch South Korean movies. You you know you can't enjoy many of the things that uh, the leadership might be enjoying from right. So he's talking more about uh, about cultural products right, rather than, yeah. than physical commercial items. Yeah. Yes, and I think you know the the danger for the North Korean ruler is that if a lot of North Korean young people are consuming foreign media, especially from South Korea, then they might start to get ideas about, hey, why is uh, why does South Korea look so great comparing yeah. to where I'm living and why do we have to live under these circumstances? And maybe, contrary to what I've been told, maybe South Korea is the uh, better Korea to be unified under. Now, why is this being talked about again and again and again? I mean, this is the umpteenth story we've done in the last two years about Kim Jong-un complaining about uh, foreign culture influence in North Korea. Well, I mean... I- the end of the day, I think, as James mentioned, it is something that 
perhaps the, the North Korean leadership, more than anything else, what they would have to fear is information, outside influences, mm-hmm. people getting the sense that this country isn't everything I've been told mm. uh, it is, and the outside world isn't everything I've told it is. When you spend decades cutting off people's access to information, you can't really, and telling them that they will not get a better life anywhere else, it is dangerous to for the, the, let them find out that, one, they could have a better life elsewhere, but perhaps even more dangerously, they could have a better life within North Korea if mm. it was a very different country. And so for them, information is the biggest danger and they will do whatever it takes to cut it out. And certainly we, when we speak to defectors, some quite often we're told that they got to, uh, the ones who were living near border areas, they got exposed to outside culture through DVDs, mm. USB sticks, pamphlets, whatever that might have been smuggled across the border. And they they watched South Korean dramas. They watched. Uh, they listened to South Korean music. Maybe uh, other influences from other countries. And they got a sense of what life is actually like outside that they had been lied to. And that, in many cases, gave them incentive to leave. So the fact that Kim Jong Un and, and North Korean state media uh, and and other government organs they keep talking about this is that a can we deduce from that? that there is a large number of, uh, of foreign materials being smuggled into North Korea? I think we definitely can. Uh, because we were talking before, as Shreya's mentioned, like things being smuggled across the border. Well, yeah. A lot of that would have been pre-COVID. And it just makes me think, like, is this right. actually... A, like, we've all heard stories, of course, of um, things being distributed in North Korea. But I wonder mm. if it's actually just way worse than we, we realise. And that's right. why it keeps on having to be... right. To be mentioned, and that's why they have to keep ratcheting up the the punishments and and reiterating them again. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it isn't. We, we, of course, these are so <laughs> like many other things. We'll never know the full extent of this for quite some time. But you can get a hint that maybe there's something more going on beneath the surface than we know. I think for sure. Now, the only uh, two names of people that I saw speaking to these thousands of of mothers gathered there were uh, Kim Jong Un himself and another uh, senior North Korean government official, Ri Il Hwan, who's also a man. So <laughs> brings me to the question. Here in, the, in this roundtable of men, uh, did only male officials speak to these thousands of mothers? Well, a lot of the uh, women who were participating in the conference also got to speak. So, ah. in fact, most of the speeches would have come from them. Uh, it is true that uh, Kim Jong-un and Riel Hwan were the only ones who were cited. And, mm. we, and certainly we got to see them speaking in TV reports as well. But there were also other male officials present. But much of the conference was very, uh, very much... Uh, involved the mothers and even some performances from children uh, just for the very much for the entertainment of the leader perhaps but I think uh, it's one of those cases where you say it's very it's partly about the leader it's very much about the leader Mm. but at the same time there was a focus on the women and they would they got to go on stage uh, or they got to talk for the benefit of the leader, in a sense. Right. And, and they also got to, to greet the leader enthusiastically yes. as we saw in the footage. So it's really, it, look, it feels like these thousands of mothers there were, you know, it's, they are kind of the star of the show, but, it, but more of a, a supporting role or as passive agents, sort of recipients of the wisdom and the, and the glory that, uh, that Kim Jong-un shines upon them. As is the case at the Mothers' Conference, as is the case at <laughs> every conference in North <laughs> Korea, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I suppose so. Gosh. All right. Any final word on the Mother's Conference? Anything uh, else that came out of it? 
Oh, I, I should say this is, we did mention this before, I don't think Kim Jong-un had addressed the Mother's Conference before. This is the first time I recall him actually giving a speech. He's been there for a photo op, but I don't recall him actually speaking and that speech being reported on before. I think we might need to recheck that, but yeah, I don't recall that either. But also, mm. I think this this Mother's Day conference also isn't usually as big a deal as mm. it was this year, and I'm not sure exactly why. For example, his speech, a lot of it also sounded like it had a lot of the talking points that you would usually expect from major party conferences. Right. So it certainly felt like there was a different... Uh, push a different focus here mm. uh, in terms and different level of significance. Right, a different status for the for the Mother's Conference, yeah. Yeah, and it was it was only the sixth Mother's Conference that I counted, right? The first one was back in the 1960s. Kim Il-sung presided over that one. The last one was 2012, I think, 11 years ago. So this is, the, there's not many Mother's Conferences like this, and this is the first nationwide one in which uh, Kim Jong-un went and spoke. Yeah, so and the last one, bear in mind, like you said, it was 2012. It was yeah. when he had just taken just, over as yeah. leader. So I think that first year or so, it was very much about him gradually ascending to his various positions. So I think this was perhaps in some ways low priority. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think even then, his uh, a lot of what he was doing was a ca- a carry o- carrying over from what his father used to do. He had yet to set his own agenda. Now he's very much his own man. His own man, yeah. All right, uh, that is it for the uh, the third theme. Now, James, this is your final time as a regular on the podcast uh, because you'll be leaving NK News soon. Uh, you've been here for a long time now. What have you chosen to go and do? <laughs> well, initially, I'll be going to Taiwan, actually, to go to language school. And I'm hoping also going forward to keep writing for NK News as well, if they'll let me. Great. Um, yeah, do some do some freelance writing and then after that, on to the next step, which I won't, I won't confirm because it's not set in stone yet. But yeah, hopefully this won't be the uh, end of me at NK News. Wow, okay. Mm, tantalizing us with a, uh, a hint of a, a possible future return. Uh, tell us about some of your memorable experiences here, James, over the years. Well, um, you know, I... A lot of the um, trips up to um, the, the, the border islands with the team, they've yeah. been a lot of fun. Unfortunately, actually, while I've been working here, I haven't been able to go to North Korea. I mean, none of the team has actually, yeah. because I, bas- I started in mid-2019, and then, of course, the COVID pandemic happened. And, I mean, that's still ongoing in some mm. ways in North Korea. You can't go as a tourist or a or a journalist at the moment. But some of those trips up to the border have, have been lots of great fun with the team. Working with North Korean defectors as well is, is always very special for me because that's the reason I first came to Korea in the first place ah. 10 years ago. Yeah, I was really inspired by the testimonies and books written by North Korean defectors and the, the, the struggles that they went through. And right. I, I saw that you could teach English to North Korean defectors. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that would be such a, a wonderful way to help a group of people that have been through, through so much, you know, find, find their initial footing in, in society. So anytime I've been able to write on, yes, history, which is, which is my, my background, but also, yeah, human rights and defectors. Because for me, you know, it's, it's all about there's all the nuclear weapons and all the geopolitics and everything, but at 
but at the heart of the the North Korean story is the uh, is the North Korean people. The people, yeah, all uh, twenty two or so million of them. Uh, now you've probably learnt a few things here from your time in NK News, and here we are. We've got you on the one side of the table, and right next to you there's Joe Smith here for his first time. This is like a symbolic handing over of the baton. <laughs> Could you uh, impart some, lay some wisdom down on Joe, uh, who's here Ooh. for his first time? What have you learnt that uh, that he should know? Get out while you can. Uh, no. <laughs> oh boy! No, <laughs> cut that out, producer. <laughs> no, um, I think while working at NK News, it's what's that expression like? The the more you learn, the less you realise you know. And um, working with with so many um, brilliant colleagues and uh, other people from outside the office, from such a variety of of backgrounds and with so many um, different expertises. I have learned so much and you know when I first came to Korea 10 years ago I thought I'd be able to single-handedly unify the peninsula I had all the answers unfortunately spoiler alert but uh 10 years later that that hasn't happened yet yeah and there's just uh, even after a number of years working on on North Korea issues you know every day there's there's something new and um even more things to discover and and explore so to Joe, I would just uh, advise to to seize all the opportunities um, that you're going to get to to work with a, a lot of fantastic people. Well, thank you, James, and good luck with your uh, next part of your journey. <laughs> yes. Uh, Shreyas, any final thoughts from you? How dare you, James? How <laughs> dare you? No, I mean, in all seriousness, though, like, I've been here just a little over a year, and it's been great working with you I, I think your enthusiasm is always quite incredible mm. uh, the energy you bring to everything and of course your knowledge i love reading your pieces as someone who loves history myself i think i genuinely love uh, the uh, kind of work you do and the passion you put into researching these topics and honestly i think it'll be very hard to replace you or for impossible. Actually, yeah, it's impossible to replace you. I pity your successor, to be honest. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, big boots to fill. But yeah, I think we'll, you'll definitely be missed here, both for the work you do as well as the positive energy you bring to the office. For sure. Comes up, Yeah. Fret not, fret well. Your legacy here is secure. <laughs> All right, that is the uh, the end of our uh, roundtable podcast for today. Thank you once again, Shreyas, Joe, and James for the final time for coming on the show. And uh, listeners, please listen again next time. NK News has launched a new app that makes staying updated on all things North Korea easier than ever. The app gives access to the latest articles so you'll never miss a breaking story. It's fast, convenient, and designed with readers in mind. Our team is dedicated to bringing you the most accurate and insightful information about North Korea with content and analysis unavailable elsewhere. Don't delay. Download the NK News app from Apple's App Store or Google Play and stay connected with the latest North Korea news and analysis. The app also works with NK Pro subscriptions, offering full access to NK Pro content. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode. 
and to our post-recording producer genius Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. <laughs>